books and reading at their very best are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. We want to give a shout out to one of our listeners, Baby Boomer on Board. They gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and it says, Amy and Carrie give their listeners an informative and relaxed experience while talking about books and book-related topics. In the last segment, they talk about a variety of life topics, often with humor. I'm so glad to have discovered them. Baby Boomer, we just want to say thank you for the kind words. In vain have I struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. These words from Mr. Darcy and Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice are perhaps some of the reasons why many readers swoon over his character and develop a love for Austen and her works. Other readers, though, like our guest this week, Amanda Beverly, see their families or people they know in the quirky individuals who make up Austen's communities. Whatever your reason for liking Austen's world, there's a way you can immerse yourself in it, which is through the Jane Austen Festival, an annual event that, due to COVID, is virtual this year. Running from July 10th through 12th, the festival includes a variety of workshops, author talks, and a Q&A that helps attendees get a taste of what the Regency period and Austin are like. In our episode this week, Amanda talks about how she became involved with the Jane Austen Society of North America, Greater Louisville Region, and what their meetings are like, how it seems the things she could learn about Jane Austen books and her time period are endless, why newbies shouldn't feel intimidated, and why the Louisville chapter of the society is known as the fashion region. So Amy, we took a little road trip. I know, it was kind of fun. It was kind of fun. We haven't done this in a long time. We took a little road trip to Lexington, and we are with Amanda Beverly. She is the social media coordinator for the Jane Austen Festival and a lifetime member of the Jane Austen Society of North America, Greater Louisville Region. She's going to tell us lots of information about the Jane Austen Festival. Thank you for being here with us. Well, thank you all for asking me to come talk to you all. Well, you all ended up coming to I me. I know. <laughs> nice we first we're talking it yes. was me coming to you yes. all and then life happened yes <laughs> we've been trying to get amanda on for quite a while and we finally made it work <laughs> so amanda tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do when you're not involved with jane austen <laughs> i am born and raised in kentucky and i went to college at center college in daneville kentucky i graduated with a bachelor's in english after that i made my way back to lexington and been living here ever since for a very long time working at a local independent bookstore getting books in people's hands just eating breathing sleeping existing with books and now when I'm not doing Jane Austen, my day job is at Shaker Village where I work in the guest services department because I love history and just being kind of out there amongst all the wonderful things. <laughs> what is Shaker Village? Shaker Village is a community. The Shakers were a religious movement that came out of Manchester, England, and they arrived in New York, uh, 1774. They're a radical branch off of a radical branch off of the Quakers. They believe in nobody has wealth over somebody else. Everything belongs to the community. And they established communities throughout New England and eventually made their way down to here in Kentucky. Our village in Harrodsburg, Kentucky, and the one in Bowling Green are the furthest south that the Shakers actually were able to establish a, a successful community. And in the 1960s, the Bluegrass Trust formed a special group specifically to look at Shaker Village and 
preserving the buildings, opening it up for people to tour, learn about the history of the Shakers. And now we are a 3,000 acre private nonprofit. We are a nature preserve. We have overnight accommodations in historic buildings dating back to the 1800s. We're a restaurant, we're a learning center, we're all kinds of things. So you're immersed in history professionally and you are immersed in history for fun. So tell us a little bit about how you developed an interest in Jane Austen. Funny enough, a lot of people think just because I'm involved with the Jane Austen Society of North America that Jane Austen has always been a part of my life. That is not the case. Growing up, my favorite books were the Little House on the Prairie series, uh, the Redwall series by Brian Jakes, and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Just all kinds of series where I'm either going back in time, having adventures. Science fiction fantasy was like a big happy place for me growing up. It wasn't until I was in college, it was my freshman year, and one of the girls on our hall decided one night, let's have a movie night. We're going to watch Pride and Prejudice. You have to watch this. You have not lived until you've seen this. And it was the Colin Firth version. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> that's usually how everybody says yeah. that. You have got to see this. Same yeah. exact. Yeah. <laughs> and so somehow she convinced 20 of us on the hall to fit into a room the size of a closet. And we watched the first three hours of. Pride and Prejudice. But the funny part was two days later, she was like, okay, we're going to watch the second half. I was the only person who showed up. What happens next? I have to know. So that kind of began my love affair with Jane Austen. That year for Christmas, I asked one of my grandmothers, I was like, I want a copy of Pride and Prejudice, the book. And I just inhaled it. And then I was like, I have to read more. I have to learn more. And that just kind of began my love affair with Jane Austen. So that seems like a little bit of a leap from fantasy science fiction that you liked as a kid (laughs) into Jane Austen. Why the sudden attraction, do you think? So funny enough, actually, Charlotte Bronte was my door (laughs) into Jane Austen. My freshman year of high school, my English teacher, for some reason, decided we needed to learn how to speed read. And so she had an excerpt from Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. And we had to read to certain marks on the page before the beep happened. And that was how we were taught speed read. And it was the scene where young Jane goes to visit Helen right before she passes away. And I was just like so engrossed. Like, oh my gosh, what happens next? So the next time I was at the library, I had to check out the full length Jane Eyre because I was like, I have to know. And then that just piqued my interest in, oh, if there's other books written like this... I want to read those too. So there's other things besides sci-fi fantasy out there. What is this magicness that's going on? So let's get all down and deep with Jane here. So (laughs) how did you become involved with the Jane Austen Society of Louisville? My involvement started actually 10 years ago. I was working at local bookstore and there's a magazine called Tea Time Magazine. I love afternoon tea. I find it a very calming ritual. It's very relaxing. So I'm flipping through this magazine. At the very beginning, they have a calendar of upcoming afternoon teas. There was a blurb in their calendar for the third annual Jane Austen Festival at Locust Grove in Louisville, Kentucky. And I immediately pulled up their website. I was like, I want to know more. I am going to be there. I immediately sent a dates off request to my manager. I am not working these days. (laughs) Try to get my coworkers to go with me. I was like, oh, this will be great. Let's all go. Nobody wanted to go with me. So my mother felt so sorry for me that she went with me and proceeded to tell everybody that weekend she was my designated driver. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, please quit telling people that. But I was just hooked because as soon as I set foot on Locust Grove's grounds and saw their setup and people walking around and getting to interact with them, I was like, these are my people. This is where I belong. And I signed my mother and I up for every single workshop we could. <laughs> she I mean, didn't know what she was getting yeah, into. Yeah, <laughs> she was just kind of like, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> and my mother still to this day, she does not read Jane Austen. She prefers nonfiction. So she's just like, as long as I get a scode at some point in time, yeah. I'm happy. <laughs> just, I remember sitting there at afternoon tea with my mother. We were seated at a, a four top, but I noticed there was this long table 
up against the far right wall and I saw all these ladies and just beautiful white Regency dresses. And in the early days, nobody was really dressing up. So they really stood out. And I looked at them and I go, that's the in crowd. Those are the cool ones. <laughs> and I want to be at that table one day. When I got home, I became a member. I started going to the meetings, the monthly meetings. Officially became a paying member of the Jane Austen Society of North America. The next year, I became the monthly program coordinator. And I served in that position for eight years. I recently stepped down because I was like, it's time for somebody new with fresh ideas to kind of step on board. The national organization hosts a yearly conference called the Annual General Meeting, the AGM. It's kind of our version of a national conference. And so 2015, Louisville hosted. So I signed up to be on that planning committee after that was done. They're like, okay, you're going to join the festival committee. So eventually that's just how I ended up here. I jumped in headfirst and was like, where do you need me? What help do you need? I want to be here. I want to meet new people. I want to talk about Jane. And now I just have this ocean of friends that I never would have had if I hadn't picked up that tea time magazine so when you first started getting involved did you feel like there was a learning curve for you I mean not just in terms of learning about the organization but did you feel like there was a learning curve in terms of learning more about Jane Austen and the Regency period I find that even after I've been in the region for so long I'm still learning things about Jane Austen and her time period that I never would have thought of the very first meeting I went to our presenter was Dr. Glennis Ridley. That was the 200th anniversary year of Sense and Sensibility. So she was speaking on Marianne Dashwood and the cult of sensibility. And I go, what? There's a cult of sensibility? I just thought it was a random title that Jane Austen was like, oh, this is alliterative. This will flow together. (laughs) No, there was actually a reason why she chose the title Sense and Sensibility. I have read Jane Austen. And I think that at least my perception is that she can seem scary. You know, I think Mm -hmm. a lot of classic writers can seem scary. I Mm -hmm. know my daughter's 16 and she is starting to read Jane Eyre. Mm -hmm. And she was like, I'm going to need you to help me with some of the vocabulary and stuff like that. So like, what would you say to people who maybe have that same kind of feeling? I say Jane is for everyone. There is no reason to feel intimidated. I tell people so many times the reason why I just clicked to Jane Austen and have become so engrossed in her world and her writing is when I read Pride and Prejudice being the first book that I read, that was the first time I saw my family in book form. Here I am like 200 years later in Kentucky and I was like, oh my gosh, this is my family. And then like every... Jane Austen book I was reading after that I go she has written six books about my family (laughs) oh my gosh how is this possible (laughs) so it's just finding a way to connect but even then we try to break it down and make it as easy to digest as possible we don't want people to feel nervous or intimidated just helping you along to see the universality of Jane Austen and how approachable she still is after all these years Let's talk about the society for a little bit. There is a national organization, Mm -hmm. the Jane Austen Society, and then there are regional. And so the one in Louisville is one of the regional. And so what does a regional meeting look like? (laughs) Now, I know right now with COVID, you are not meeting in person, but normally what would you be doing during a monthly meeting? The Jane Austen Society of North America, the national offices, they kind of let each of the regions tailor their meanings to what best suits them like some of the regions are in areas where it's harder to get together just because people are so far apart like in the western states and so they'll only meet either one time a year or two times a year the greater louisville region we're one of the few regions that meets monthly and our meetings they're at locust grove either second third or fourth sunday each month locust grove this lovely historical estate we meet in the visitor center they have lecture hall there everybody's greeting each other we have a brief business meeting our speaker of the month gets up to do a presentation our theme every year we base it on whatever the theme for the national conferences for the agm so this year the theme for national conference is the juvenilia 
which is Jane Austen's earlier writing when she was a teenager. So a lot of the programs were dealing with either her early writings or what Jane's life would have been like when she was younger. The previous year, it was the 200th anniversary of the publication of Persuasion, so all of our programs based around that. After our presentation, we then break and have afternoon tea. (laughs) Even though afternoon tea is not something that Jane Austen would have done herself, she would have at least had tea, but she wouldn't have had like the courses with the little sandwiches and the scones and all that fun stuff that we know and love today. But we all love afternoon tea, so (laughs) (laughs) So that's one exception we're willing to make. We're like, we have to have afternoon tea. And we, we have the little cups and saucers, and we have our plates, and we just sit around and just enjoy each other's company and talk. We have a library set up where everybody can check out books and there are not only books about Jane Austen or books that were written about her, books about the time period. There's a film adaptation of Jane Austen that you've wanted to see and haven't been able to get a hold of. We have it for you to check out. And we just have all kinds of fun at the monthly meetings. So when you said you have a speaker, can you give us some idea of what types of things that they've spoken about? Our monthly programs the theme around those are to help our members get a better understanding of what they're reading in Jane Austen's books or taking a deeper look at a particular topic or theme that occurs in one of her novels. A lot of our speakers come from within the region. When I was monthly program coordinator, I always told people I put on my best Mrs. Jennings impression from Mrs. ability and said, I'm going to winkle a program out of you <laughs> because we have People from all walks of life. We have avid Jane Austen readers. We have college professors. We have librarians, people who are fans. And we've been able to get amazing programs. And then we also reach out to academics in the community. Occasionally we'll have a Jane Austen scholar from somewhere in North America come to do a guest lecture. And then in December, we always try to have a bigger name lecture just because we want to celebrate Jane Austen's birthday at being in December. So we have a big program. Everybody gets dressed up in our Regency attire. And sometimes we've had past Jane Austen Society of North America presidents. We've had authors of Jane Austen books come. But we've covered everything from the geology of Lyme Regis during Persuasion. That was a fantastic talk that was given by Carrie one of our members she is a professor of geology at University of Southern Indiana a very good friend of mine who is actually team Bronte but I have (laughs) I have brought her to the dark side So is there a is there a rivalry between Austin and well, Bronte? Well, here's the lovers? funny thing. So there used to be because Charlotte Bronte talked some smack about <laughs> Jane Austen in some letters. Wow. And of course Jane Austen wasn't alive to defend herself. Oh. And so there's always just been this unspoken rivalry between Team Bronte, Team Austin. There's this great podcast out called Bonnets at Dawn, hosted by Lauren and Hannah. They're college friends. Lauren's Team Bronte, Hannah's Team Austin. And they started out as doing kind of a rivalry podcast, but it's since branched out to cover women's literature from about 18th century to on up. And Mary and I were greatly inspired because we're Team Austin and Team Bronte in our own life. So this past year, when Colonial Williamsburg hosted National Conference, the annual general meeting, the theme was Northanger Abbey. So we did a presentation comparing Northanger Abbey to Jane Eyre. So we did a Team Austin versus Team Bronte. Mary the whole time was very nervous that people were going to be like throwing overripe tomatoes at her, that there would be sharpening of pitchforks. Somehow while we're giving this presentation, there was like this catharsis moment that happened and by the end for the rest of the weekend we had so many people coming up to us going you know what I actually really enjoy Jane Eyre you know I've never (laughs) heard really read the works of Anne Bronte which one should I start with apparently we just needed to tell people it's okay if you like Charlotte Bronte it's okay nothing bad will happen to you no judgment-free zone here so we're working on getting team bronte team austin together that's funny i never would have thought that i keep picturing fight club yeah (laughs) so about the festival what would the festival have looked like in a normal year 
a normal year when we're all not having to social distance and we can all be amongst each other. When the festival first started in the early, early days, it was only two days long and started first thing Saturday morning and ended 5 p.m. on Sunday afternoon. And it was it was about the eighth or ninth festival that the crowds were getting so, so big and people were coming from further and further out of town that we decided, well, we've got people who are coming in on Fridays now to make sure they're ready for the festival. Why don't we open up a Friday night candlelight shopping night? And so now it's two and a half days long. And from the moment you set foot on Locust Grove property until the time you leave, we try to make it as much as this is what it would have been like to live in a Jane Austen novel. We have vendor tents all over the green, and it looks like you've just gone to a marketplace where you can go shop your wares we have all kinds of entertainments and demonstrations bare knuckle boxing shadow puppets punch and judy gentlemen's duel we have naval reenactors who come in and from the moment they set foot on property they are in character they will inscript people they will court-martial people (laughs) they will go visit the other costume interpreters and stay in character we have lectures throughout the day to help get a better understanding of jane austen's novels we still have the fashion show that we had from the very beginning betsy bayshore gail simmons they come out and do fashion show for us every year people can tour locust grove the house and gail simmons has mannequins in the house in full costume that she has made these historical reproduction dresses to get a better understanding of what regency fashion is we have afternoon tea and just all kinds of fun wonderful things Was there a ball? Yes, there is always a ball. That is our most popular event of the festivals, the Saturday evening ball. And the past couple of years, we've been fortunate enough to have it at the Pendennis Club in downtown Louisville. And it's just gorgeous. And you get to have dinner. And then afterwards, you go upstairs to the ballroom. And it's just wonderful. Everybody's in their finery. And we have uh, the English country dancers from Louisville. They come and their caller he calls our dances and teaches everyone how to do them and some of your events are really hard to get into because i know the year that amy and i went i think we were just new to it and we were like oh we'll see if we can go sold out sold out of the tea i think it was the afternoon tea we couldn't get a the saturday afternoon teas go very very quickly the saturday evening ball that goes in like 0.2 seconds. The moment it opens up, it's gone. And so the wait list starts like within five minutes. <laughs> I think this event is this great meld of literature and history. So I don't think you have to be a huge literature mm-hmm. lover or Jane Austen lover necessarily mm-hmm. to attend. I mean, even if you just like history, if you like reenactments, because it's sort of like a reenactment Oh, yeah. joined with English literature, and it's, it's really cool. Oh, yeah. We get so many people who they want to come because they love the fashion of the time period. Mm-hmm. They want to see the reenactments. We have workshops that people can register for to learn to make different craft items. We've had so many people who have taken a workshop with us about just various different things. They've gone on to, like, segue into, oh, now I make an entire dress. <laughs> Just from one little workshop that they took ages ago. With this year and COVID, what does the festival look like now? Unfortunately, we had to scale way, way back. And I look at it as we are offering you an amuse-bouche of what (laughs) a typical festival would be like. We're just kind of hitting the highlights. When we were at Locust Grove in person, we could have four or five different events going on at the same time. Instead, we're just kind of offering samplings. We have wonderful lectures. This year, our three keynote speakers are Deborah Yaffe, who wrote Among the Janeites. Wonderful book about people she's met in her journeys that just eat, breathe, consume Jane Austen in some way, shape, or form in their life. Then on Saturday, we have Ann Bogle from Modern Mrs. Darcy and What Should I Read Next? She's hosting a roundtable with all of our keynote speakers talking about Jane Austen and why she's so popular. And then... 
I'm really excited. Our Sunday presenter is Sonia Kamal, who wrote A Marriageable. I don't know if either one of you read that. No, but this I is my public service announcement. Everybody <laughs> read A Marriageable. Get this book in your life. I am a one woman campaign that everybody needs to read this book. It is so good. It is Pride and Prejudice set in modern day Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And so Sonia Kamal is going to be our Sunday speaker, and she's talking about. The importance of libraries as well as Jane Austen's inspiration on her as a writer. Even though we're having to be virtual, it has opened us up for some things like the Jane Austen House Museum or the Jane Austen House. They are sending us a video tour Mm. of the Jane Austen House. So if you've never been able to see, now is your chance. And we're going to be offering a guided tour of Locust Grove. For those attending this year who are from all over the world who normally would never have been able to attend one of our festivals. And we don't have as many workshops as we normally do. But the neat thing about our workshop setup the way it is, the instructors are putting together kits of supplies and mailing them to people who register. And they'll be doing uh, workshops over Zoom. And we'll be using all kinds of different social media platforms to host Q&As. You'll be seeing videos from various different members of the committee making either signature cocktails or talking about why we love Jane Austen uh, throughout the festival. So even though it's a little bit different, we're going to give you a sample of what to expect the next time we get to meet in person. (laughs) Since you've been involved with the society for a long time, what have you heard from other people about why Jane Austen is still so popular and has almost taken on a life of its own. <laughs> Reading her books and realize a lot of the situations, a lot of the people she's writing about, they're still around. A lot of it is still things that happen. Uh, in the case of Mr. Collins, how many times have you come across a guy who is just not taking no for an answer? <laughs> how many people have run into the town gossip, like Mrs. Jennings, who just has no filter, who wants to matchmake you to everybody? Like your, one of your speakers has, has done a retelling set in Pakistan of mm-hmm. one of her books. So it shows the universality mm-hmm. of it. And I'm wondering what the society thinks about all of these modern retellings. I mean, there's like there's a whole crop of books out oh, yeah. that are Austin inspired, Austin influenced. Yeah. This past couple of weeks, we've been hosting an Instagram challenge to get everybody excited about the festival 30 day photo challenge designed by our festival intern, Ashley. And one of the prompts that day was favorite Jane Austen adaptation. And at first I thought everybody was going to probably pick the same one or two things. No, like Bride and Prejudice got a major shout outs, which just made me happy. If nobody has seen that movie, you need to see that movie. It is the Bollywood film version of Pride and Prejudice. It is wonderful. If you've ever watched a Bollywood movie, you've also seen Pride and Prejudice. It's like combining the best of two worlds and a cocktail shaker and then just letting it loose. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Clueless, everybody loves Clueless. Clueless got a lot of love that day. And there's still people who like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, <laughs> which I was amazed. So there's not the same kind of tension that there is just with Team Bronte. So there's <laughs> not a, you know, they're open to these newer yeah, versions. Because I, I remember the first festival that I attended, we went to this lecture. Whoever was giving the presentation, she was just killing some time, just talking. And she brought up, has anybody read Pride and Prejudice and Zombies? What do you all think? And the lady next to my mother got very upset. <laughs> to the point where I was like trying to scoop my mother's chair <laughs> <Yeah>. towards me. <laughs> I was like, I don't know where this is going. <laughs> but she was It just, is Fight Club. <laughs> she was just very staunch. Like, no, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. No, Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. Oh my gosh, that's just ruining Jane Austen for everybody. But now people are becoming more open to the adaptations and just like, Oh, this is a new, interesting way to see things. And I think it could be an entry for younger readers who may read that and think, oh, well, I want to read the original now. If they started out thinking the original might be too scary to read. Scary as far as I'm not going to understand it. The writing style is going to be hard. That kind of thing. So are there other Jane Austen festivals around the country? 
Well, we just found out the other day we were contacted by, in Mexico City, for the past five years, they've been hosting a festival called Mundo Darcy, so Darcy World. (laughs) Uh, And they reached out to us wanting to know more about our festival to take back to their members to tell them about, because being virtual, their members can actually join us this time. And we're like, wait, there's a festival in Mexico City? Why are we just now finding out road trip once we can all (laughs) road trip again? And we get well past 2,000 people attending these things over a two and a half day period. We're starting to see more and more Jane Austen festivals pop up all over North America. But of course, there's always the original, the Jane Austen Festival in Bath, England, that's put on by the Jane Austen Center there. So were you all the first in the United States? So are uh, you the largest? I don't know if we, necessarily if we were the first, but we're the largest. Okay. Yeah. We're going to switch gears, still in the same <laughs> same wheelhouse, but because when we walked in, and we'll have video and pictures of these, but beautiful Regency-style dresses and costumes. So talk to us a little bit about what you find fascinating about the Regency period. Well, for those of you at home who can't see what we're seeing, uh, we're in the home of my dear friend and fellow Greater Louisville member, Kathy Chopra, and she is our fashion guru. So she immediately dragged some mannequins from the various parts of her house. She pulled some dresses and nightgowns and accessories. So you'll be seeing pictures of the setup she had greeting us. But like I said earlier, when we first started going to the festival, very few people were dressing in historical period attire. Like for the longest time I was going in like capris and just whatever lightweight shirt I could find just to be comfortable. But over the years, because the committee members and our regional members were coming in Regency attire that emboldened and helped people to feel like, oh, well, I want to get dressed up too. And one of our vendors that has been with us for a few years now, Maddie's Millinery, they are three sisters out of Minnesota. And they pretty much from the time the festival ends until the next festival, they make ready-made dresses and they will do on-site alterations for you if you find a dress because we started having more and more people asking us do we have to be in regency attire where can i get a dress and so that helped a lot of people be like oh well now i can come dress when we came i was standing in line and there was a woman behind me who was dressed from head to toe in regency attire so i started asking her a little bit about that and she was from new york And she said that she and a friend of hers, a hobby that they like to do was sewing and that they had made themselves a couple of different costumes for different historical periods. Mm -hmm. And for fun, they would travel around the country to different festivals that were featuring that time period. And Mm -hmm. so like, I think she had one that was like the 1920s and she had a Regency, but I thought that was a really cool thing, which is why I'm saying you don't necessarily have to be a Jane Austen lover Mm -hmm. to attend a festival. There's lots of other aspects to it as well. So when you have your meetings, do people come dressed? Not all the time. Sometimes we'll be discussing topics where it's fashion oriented Mm -hmm. and then we'll encourage our members to dress. Mm -hmm. One of our members, Carrie, she did a presentation one time on the significance of Mrs. Elton's pearl necklace in Emma. And so we encourage everybody to wear their pearls. And definitely in December when we do our birthday tea for Jane Austen, we encourage everybody to dress up because it's Jane Austen's birthday. But the fashion is more of a trademark and kind of signature of the Louisville region. We discovered when we hosted National Conference 2015 that that was our trademark when somebody who had gone to the first time attendees meeting she said what you need to know about the louisville region is the louisville region is the fashion region Uh (laughs) and then we started hearing whispers people saying oh if you ever have like a fashion issue or costume malfunction find somebody from the louisville region and they will fix you in no time (laughs) 
So I have one last question. Are there any men involved with the Jane Austen? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. We do have male members. In fact, one of them will be presenting a lecture during our virtual festival. His name is Ron. He gives fascinating programs. So this year we asked him to do a presentation on sports and games for what I'm calling Georgian Regency Sports Center. <laughs> cool. <laughs> on Sunday afternoon when you normally would have been watching whatever summer sport is supposedly (laughs) playing. Not happening right now. (laughs) So if someone wants to register, tell us the dates of the festival for this year and how they can find you to... Yeah, so the festival is going to start Friday, July 10th at about 6 o'clock in the evening is when we'll start posting the videos and the links to access the videos on our personal YouTube channel. And it'll be going till July 12th. Five o'clock is when the last presentation will end. We'll have a couple of additional workshops in the evening because the workshops proved to be so popular. We had to add second set of workshops. The workshops registration for them will be closing June 30th for workshops and the keynote Q&As. Registration for the festival will be closed July 3rd. And you can access all this on our website, www.jasnalouisville.com, J-A-S-N-A Louisville.com. Just click the link in the menu for Jane Austen Festival. It'll take you straight to it. Admission is free this year because we're going to be online. However, we have included links to donate to the emergency fund for Jane Austen House, Chawton House, which is the house Jane Austen's brother, Edward Knight, lived in and has now become a research library for women's literature of the 18th and 19th century, as well as the emergency fund for Locust Grove, because there are homes, so we need to take care of them as much as we need to take care of Jane Austen as well. They've been good to us. (laughs) So if somebody is interested in learning more about the Jane Austen Society, the Louisville region chapter, Mm -hmm. what should they do? So if you would like to come join us at one of our monthly meetings, we're in the process of transferring our monthly meetings from being in person, since we can't do that right now, to having Zoom meetings. So they'll be online. So if you want to join us for that, and then definitely join us for when we can be in person again, go to our website and sign up to be on our email list. We'll notify you. You do not have to be a member in good standing of the Jane Austen Society of North America. If you just want to try it out for a couple of times, come to a couple of meetings, see if it's what you're interested in. And then if you enjoy yourself, go to jasna.org j-a-s-n-a.org and you can pay your membership and become a full-time member and come join us on a regular basis at jasna greater louisville awesome well thank you so much for talking about this we're going to take a short break and when we come back we're going to talk about what we've been reading We're back with Amanda Beverly and with Carrie, and I want to know what y'all are reading. So I finished reading Sing Unburied Sing by Jasmine Ward. And as you know, Amy, I had read Salvage the Bones, which is also by Jasmine Ward. You're working your way through. I know. So I gave Salvage the Bones five stars, and Sing Unburied Sing gets five stars. This is the second book in what I hope will be... A long series. Now, the books are unrelated. You know, they're different characters. But basically, what she's doing is she's got this community called Bois Sauvage. And each of these books, you meet a different family. For Salvage the Bones, she started out that book with an animal. It was a dog giving birth. And so that's how the last book started. And that image relate it to the whole rest of the book. She does something similar in Sing Unburied Sing. That book starts with this family. It's a grandfather and a grandmother, and they are more or less raising their two grandchildren. Now, their mother, Leone, is around, but she's got a drug addiction problem, and the children's father has been in prison. And so part of the book is that Leone, Jojo, and Kayla, that's the mother and the two children, go to pick up the father because he's getting out of jail. The book begins with an image of Jojo, the grandson, 
helping his grandfather slaughter a goat. So it sets you up at the beginning of this book with this very visceral image of something happening to an animal. And then that idea and the feeling that you get from that is conveyed through the rest of the book. I've been thinking a lot about Jesmyn Ward, and I feel like she is a lot like Toni Morrison, but I feel like she's more approachable. Amy, our book club, read Toni Morrison. And a lot of the ladies in our book club talked about how Toni Morrison, her writing can be difficult to get through because of just her style of writing. I feel like Jesmyn Ward does a lot of the same stuff that Toni Morrison does, but it's easier to access. So this book tells the story of Jojo and his younger sister and their mother going to pick up their father. And I don't want to give too much away, but there is an element of a ghost story in this. And it is so powerful. It's one of those books that is working on so many different levels. And I can't say it's an enjoyable read, but it's a very impactful, like you get to certain parts of the book and you feel like you've been punched. So for me, I just feel like she is one of those modern writers who provides so much depth and so much meat and so much to think about in her writing that it stays with you. You're not going to forget what happens in her books. Didn't that book win an award? It did. It did. I believe both of them have won National Book Awards or been National Book Award finalists. Highly recommend Sing Unburied Sing. I mean, it's an easy read in terms of it's it's something that you can understand. You can read it on various levels, but in terms of emotional investment and what it leaves you with when you're finished. You're not going to read this book and be like, wow, that was fun and I feel very relaxed. You know, it's going to give you a lot to so think about. You need to about. be prepared. You need to be mm-hmm. prepared. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So Amanda, what have you been reading? Well, I read about five to six books at a time. So I only brought two. Okay. <laughs> I narrowed it down because I figured that would just be rude to hog all the time. <laughs> talking about all the books I'm currently reading. I don't know. I mean, that's our jam. We yeah. love hearing about new books. <laughs> First up, this is an advanced copy of a book that I got from Harper Perennial, the publisher. It came out this past Tuesday. It's called This is Major, Notes on Diana Ross, Dark Girls and Being Dope by Shayla Lawson, showing the cover Mm -hmm. to the ladies. And uh, this is nonfiction, a collection of essays. Shayla, I discovered when reading this book, she is from Lexington, Kentucky. She grew up here, graduated Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School, class of early 2000s, and I'm sure shocked that the Herald Leader and the Courier Journal is not covering the fact that she got a book deal from a major publishing house and this book is out because oh my gosh this book is phenomenal I can't recommend it enough it's pretty much a collection of essays about her life different aspects of her life while she's incorporating stories of black women and black girls who influenced art and the creative process and fashion and so many different things and their stories were forgotten or were misconstrued or the narrative was changed on them and they were just forgotten about and all sorts of different statistics dealing with black women that have either been misinterpreted or hidden away and it's just such a good book like I'm totally glued to it love this book this is major cannot recommend it enough Uh, Next up is Miss Bunkle's book by D.E. Stevenson. This book was written in, let's see, 1934. Wow. This is published by Persephone Books, which is why it's in this beautiful, solid gray cover. Those of you who don't know Persephone Books, they're based out of London, England. I've been to their bookshop. It is a wonderful bookshop. You all need to go if you're ever in London. And they have made it their mission to publish books by mostly female authors, that have kind of gone by the wayside like they were really popular when they first came out i think the farthest back they go to is 18th century all the way to kind of mid 20th century but nobody's heard about these books now and so they're kind of bringing them out of the archives and this is one of them d.e stevenson she wrote all kinds of books this is the first book in the trilogy and miss bunkle's book i recommend it if you love bbc miniseries like Cranford, just any BBC miniseries. 
that takes place in a small British village where everybody knows everybody's business and they all gossip about each other because that's pretty much what they do. Miss Bunkle, she is a 40-something spinster and it's in the middle of England's depression. Her parents have died. She was living off their pension. The pension's drained out. She has no idea how to make money. So she decides she's going to write a book and somehow she gets it published. But poor Miss Bunkle, she's not the smartest one out there. She's not the brightest light bulb. So all she can think of as inspiration is to just write about the people she lives with in this village. And she changes their names to names that are kind of sort of similar to their name. (laughs) And she's like, nobody will figure this out. Well, the book gets published and lo and behold... The town watch is what I call this one character. She has read it and she has figured it out that this book is about everybody in the village. And her character is not portrayed nicely because she's not a nice person. And so Miss Bunkle kind of calls her out on this. So she is on a one woman mission to get this book banned. So it's just the hilarity of poor Miss Bunkle trying to make sure nobody finds out that she is the author of this book while everybody else is like freaking out that their secrets are now out in the open and on the market. Those are two very different reads. Do you typically read things that are vastly different? I try to because I've found in the past if I start reading too many books that are the same, I start getting into a rut. So every once in a while when I find I'm reading too much of the same thing, I'm like, okay, we got to change it up. Mm-hmm. So I go across the whole span. Like, Well, Amy, what have you had going on? So I finished recently a memoir called Good Boy, My Life and Seven Dogs by Jennifer Finney Boylan. And this came out just a month or two ago of this year. And we're taping this in the last week of June, and I wanted to get at least one LGBTQ book in for Pride Month. But I heard an interview with this author on another podcast, and I was immediately drawn to it, of course, because of the dogs. I'm a huge dog nut, and no bones about it. (laughs) (laughs) But any book about dogs that features dogs, where dogs play any kind of role, is a book that I eventually want to read. The total bonus for me, though, is that this is also a memoir of a trans woman. And that is a subject I've not read very much about that, fiction or nonfiction. So I'm thankful to this book and this author for helping me fill that void in my reading life. And so Jennifer Finney Boyland, she's a professor, author of both fiction and nonfiction, a human rights activist and a New York Times opinion columnist. And she transitioned when she was an adult and already had two sons and a wife. So the memoir is from an interesting perspective in that it follows Boylan's life through the lens of the dogs that she had throughout her life. And this was something that I can relate to because when I think about the dogs that I have owned, I always associate them with stages in my own life. So a Sheltie I had, it was the first dog I ever owned, I associate with being a newly married person. She was our first anniversary gift to each other. And a golden doodle that we had named Mango, I associate with being a young mother. And in fact, when Mango passed away, it was like a stage of my life had ended and had a lot of finality to it. And so when I cried about Mango's passing, I was also grieving that my time as a young mother was never going to come back. And this was an end of an era for me. So this book follows that idea, but with the added interest of Boylan's journey to discovering how to be in the world as someone who didn't feel like the gender that they were born. So Boylan goes through the dogs that she had when she was a boy, the dogs that she had as a man, husband, and father, and then finally as a woman, wife, and mother. And so the love and loyalty of a dog is unconditional. So I think that's an important way in which a book about dogs of a person who had fierce internal struggles within themselves, um, which made them feel unlovable and living a lie in both themselves and those around them could be an interesting relationship. One of the relationships I found the most interesting in this, though, was the one that she had with her youngest son when he was in his 20s, trying to find himself. And it's super thought-provoking, but I don't want to say too much more because I thought it was a epiphany moment at the end of the book. But this book is warm and funny and definitely gave me a lot of insight into what it would feel like to be a trans person. But it isn't all about dogs. Most of the book is really about her journey 
and the dogs sort of help guide you through, which is why I think that if this is a subject matter that you've not read a lot about and that you want to find out more, this book could be a gentle way to start your journey into learning about LGBTQIA issues, about trans issues. And it made me think of another book that our book club actually read, which is a book of fiction that I thought was phenomenal, which is also another gentle way to introduce yourself to that subject, which is This Is How It Always Is by Lori Frankel. And Frankel is the mother of a transgender daughter. And her book is about a family that has four boys. And then when they have their fifth child and it's a son, but that child, almost from the beginning that it's born, wants to be and acts like a girl and how the family deals with that. Should they go along with how the child sees themselves or not? Uh, what should they tell other people? When we read that book in book club, I thought it was a really thought-provoking book and it helped people who, who don't have any experience with trans issues and might feel that it's strange or alien to understand that that child is still just your child. They're still a person, even if what they feel on the inside is maybe not what they look like on the outside. So I would recommend both of those books for Pride Month or anytime. All right, well, when we come back, we're gonna be asking Amanda her top five. We are back with Amanda and we're gonna ask her her top five. Question one, you have an interest in historic sites and museums. What is the top historic site or museum you've visited or the top site you want to visit and why? Oh my gosh, that one was a really tough one. So I'm dipping to column A and column B a little (laughs) bit here. So my love of museums began when I lived in London for a while. That was the first time I ever been to some place where you didn't have to pay admission to go to a museum. So as a poor college student, I was like, score. And then I was like, oh, museums are actually cool, fun places. And that began my love. So I've been to some fantastic places internationally than Hampton Court Palace because my go-to number one has always been the Tudors. <laughs> I'm telling you, my babysitters growing up were obsessed with soap operas and I just never clicked with it. The Tudors are my soap opera. That is a soap opera. Days of Our Lives, General Hospital, <laughs> yeah. cannot compete with <laughs> the Tudors. But locally, uh, Colonial Williamsburg, when I was there for the annual general meeting this past fall, I probably could have stayed another whole week and still not have seen everything. Here in Lexington, the Mary Todd Lincoln House is kind of a sleeper. People need to be checking out the Mary Todd Lincoln House. Just think as if you're going to a UK basketball game and then just drive 10 more seconds. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because it's right next to Rupp Arena. They started hosting birthday parties for Mary Todd Lincoln at her house because it's always in December like Jane Austen's birthday two years ago was her 200th anniversary so they had a 200th birthday party this year they just had a Christmas party and they go all out and it's so wonderful and not a lot of people know about this I've never been to the Mary Todd Lincoln house I haven't either they do it up for their Christmas party like you go on a scavenger hunt throughout the house they have military bands come and do concerts they have Mary Todd Lincoln's almond cake they have games and you win money to go spend in the gift shop. Phenomenal. Uh, Locust Grove in Louisville, our home base, they have been doing such great work recently of really stepping it up, talking about the history of enslaved people mm-hmm. on that property. Uh, they have started a series on their social media platforms where they're telling the stories of all the registered enslaved people. Mm-hmm. So you know their name, you know their history. And they have done so such great things partnering up with the Slave Dwelling Project. My big wish list one day is to do a literary tour of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Everybody's like, why Massachusetts? I'm like, I've got to see Louisa May Alcott's home. I need to go see Emily Dickinson's home. I need to see Walden Pond. I need to go to Salem, Massachusetts. Got to go see Edith Wharton's house. I did some of those. We went to New England four or five years ago, and I drug my husband to Salem, Massachusetts. The House of Seven Gables mm-hmm. was based on. We did a tour of that, which I thought was very cool. My husband snoozed through most of it. I wanted to go to Walden Pond. We drove past it on the interstate. And I'm like, you kind of just waved Pond. at it. I know. We waved at it. But I agree. Massachusetts is a good one. So you like to stay on top of the new fads that your nieces and nephews are into. So what is the top fad of the moment that you've learned about? Okay, so in the two and a half months I was in quarantine, I have 
I think, tested or participated in about everything that my nieces have come across on TikTok. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I just could never do TikTok. I am not that interesting of a person. Honestly, neither are they. (laughs) But my nieces love it. Like my youngest niece, she's 10 and she directs like whole videos and edits them, puts them on TikTok. I don't even exactly I, understand I what TikTok out my is. Still, yeah. The last time I was over, she set up a tattoo parlor because she saw the video on TikTok where if you saturate a piece of paper with a drawing on it and just perfume and then soak it in water and saturate it some more, you can transfer the image over to someone's skin like a tattoo. Did it, did it work? work? Not really. <laughs> she was a, she was a little bit disappointed. She's like, it didn't come out dark enough. And I was like, it's okay. Uh-huh. You know, it's sort of like the whole Pinterest thing. Like what you see on Pinterest and then what happens yeah. in reality. Yeah. You mentioned that you're a bookshop lover. What is the top thing that makes bookshops stand out for you and be memorable? And do you have a favorite? I've got so many favorites, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but what makes a bookshop memorable to me is if it's unique. And a lot of times that's attributed to it being a local independent bookstore because when it's kind of like a box shop, you're not going to get that unique factor. But I've come across so many great ones over the years. If you ever go to Asheville, North Carolina, go to Malaprops. They are phenomenal. I mean... First off, they have a shelf in that bookstore labeled Books with Pretty Covers. Ah, Which I've never seen in a bookstore before, and I was like, sold. Uh, Another one, if you're ever in Bath, England, right across the corner from where the Jane Austen Center is, is Mr. B's Books. And they have a book concierge service. Like, you can sign up and meet one-on-one with somebody, and they will personally recommend books for you. Wow. And then another one that I've been working with a lot recently is the Cincy Book Bus. It is not a bookstore. Melanie's got herself that VW bus, and it's phenomenal what she's been doing. And all of her proceeds go to providing books for libraries and centers that are in need of books. And she will just work with you one-on-one if you need something. Or she posts a picture saying, I just got these books in. You can just message her and be like, I want it. And she's like, okay, invoice is in your inbox. Within just days, you have wonderful book at your doorstep. We've talked a little bit about Regency-style fashion. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, what is your favorite article of Regency-style clothing to wear at the Jane Austen Festival? Well, for daytime during the festival, when we're out in the sweaty, sweaty, hot, hot, I prefer lightweight cotton, lightweight muslin, just because it's so hot and you want something breathable. But when it comes time for the Saturday evening ball... That's when we pull out the stops. And I love wearing just bright, colorful fabrics because the Regency time period is when we're seeing England colonizing India and they're bringing back all those beautiful saris and bright Indian fabrics. And the women are taking that and incorporating it into their dresses, into their fabric. So I'll try to wear some aspect of Indian fabric to the ball just because I love those bright colors and just kind of the uniqueness and how no two saris are alike. All right, and your last question. What is the top piece of etiquette that was common during the Regency period that you wish we still did today? Being in quarantine kind of made me realize this. Just checking in with your neighbor. Mm. That's a big thing that I didn't realize was really missing until we all went into quarantine. And some of us were handling it better than others. We all took it in stages. Like at the beginning, I was not handling it very well, whereas others were handling it great. And now we're switched. But we made sure we were always checking in on each other. And we started just trading goods and services just so we could at least be at each other's doorstep. Kathy would contact me and say, if I leave you out a bag of pecans, will you come pick it up and bake me something with it? <laughs> I was like, yeah, sure. And then uh, somebody else that I work with, she was texting me that her mother in Georgia was sick and she needed to go home. And I go, do you have face masks? Do you have gloves? She goes, no. And I go, stop by my house. I've got it in my mailbox waiting for you. That was our way of checking in on each other. I I think one of the things, if you're on social media, there's a certain amount for whatever reason, if it's because you're not directly in front of somebody's face, that we feel like we can say whatever it is that's floating in Mm -hmm. our heads. And 
that should not happen most of the time. And so I think there's this fine line. If you think about the manners of Jane Austen period, where in some ways maybe they were too polite and they didn't say things that needed to be said. At the mm-hmm. same time, we've gone way too far I think the opposite direction where things that we should probably keep to ourselves, we just like, well, it's out there now and (laughs) you deal with it. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast. Yes, thank you for having me and thank you for coming to Lexington. (laughs) Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.